Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Alina, how are you doing? Are you flagging still? I'm good. I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm missing <laughs> my bed though. <laughs> it is It is quite crazy at History Hack HQ, which is kind of divided between London and southern Poland. Uh, we've got for you today our first uh, archaeology program, which I'm really excited about. But I'm going to hand over to uh, Alina to introduce our guest to you. Alina, who do we have? I want to introduce to all of you my good friend, Gilad Jaffe. Okay. Hello. Hey, he Gilad. is... <laughs> He's an archaeologist and a historian from Israel, so we're travelling further east at the moment. He's a field archaeologist and uh, he was an excavation director in the Israeli Antiquities Authority. Today he's with us talking about biblical archaeology. Is the truth really out there? So hmm, we are going to find out. Welcome to our podcast. Me? Thank you. how are things going in israel what's the corona situation there are you locked down we're locked down and we are even more locked down than we were last week there's basically we're allowed to go out once a day uh you know for shopping groceries or medical stuff or if you need to go to the doctor other than that just uh you know stay inside um i've i've done a my own private lockdown for three weeks already with, with all the kids we're in the house already for three weeks, even before it began nationwide. Um, so, you know, four kids at home all day. It's nice. It's a different uh, environment. Um, so, I don't know, I, I kind of willingly put myself under my mum's roof for the duration of this because um, I don't want her to be alone. And uh, she's developed, um, we're going to talk about mad hobbies. My mum has developed this obsession with designing soups. Like, literally, if you leave an item of food on the kitchen counter for any length of time, she will liquidise it. Um, she's gone a little bit crazy with it. The results are tasty, but I feel she's got an unnatural now obsession with making soups. Gilad, have you developed any mad hobbies so far or you just overrun with children all day long? Actually, I find myself uh, reinventing myself due to this uh, situation. And because, well, my job is I lecture. I lecture about archaeology to the general public, uh, senior citizens, community centers. And suddenly I can't lecture physically, so I'm reinventing my whole lecture uh, life to being online. It's interesting, it's nice, it's challenging, 
Um, and you know, again, when you have four kids at home, uh, you have to find the time to do it and uh, just, you know, excuse my language, stay the F quiet for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> How old are your kids? Um, six to 16. Yeah. Um, but actually, you know, if we're really talking about the whole Corona situation here, it's all mingled up with the politics. We just had the third election in one year because people here can't admit they lost. <laughs> so um, uh, everything, everything is so messed up. You can't even trust the word the government says anymore. So um, it's interesting. You know what the Chinese curse says? You live in interesting times. I think that's what's going on now. <laughs> yeah. Right. Let's get on with some history. Alina, go for it. Do you know what? Before we get on to this, this archaeology thing, I really need to let everyone know how much of an awesome guy this, this man is. He took me in in Israel for a couple of days. We went and toured so many different archaeological sites and historical sites and museums and everything that, you know, I could have spent months out there. So if anybody needs the ideal tour guide, this is your man. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you. We've been, uh, we're trying to get outside of uh, the box in terms of where we interview people from. We don't want to be all British and all American. So uh, this is really exciting for me. So I heard you excavated at Magdala and Megiddo, which I've heard of because uh, of Allenby. Um, but that's where my knowledge of this talk ends. Um, but you've done some other really amazing sites. What's your favourite site so far that you've excavated? Uh, my favorite will be uh, Tel Kabri, which is up on the north shoreline of Israel. Um, it's a Middle Bronze Age palace. When I say Middle Bronze Age in here in the Levant, we're talking about between the 19th to the uh, 14th century BC. Um, the amazing thing is that there are a few very unique finds over there. You have, first of all, my known uh, uh, fresco fragments. Uh, which are uh, it's uh, evidence of of my knowing connections between the Levant uh, in that area, in that in that period. Sorry, and uh, the other one of the most amazing finds was the oldest wine cellar in the world. We're talking about over eighty storage jars, all of them excavated one by one with soil samples, and all of them had inside of them exactly the same type of wine. Um, which is amazing. Never found before, never found since. Let's, um, let's, let's get on to your topic. So talk to us. How does the archaeology correlate to the Bible and how do you go about backing, backing it all up? Um, well, we have to, as per usual, start at the beginning. You have to remember that archaeology in Israel, or then Palestine, uh, began late 19th century, early 20th century. People came here to excavate. People like Albright and uh, uh, Schumacher and Americans like uh, Fisher and Loud, they came here to find the Bible. When, If you know the name James Henry Breasted, a famous Egyptologist from Chicago University, he funded the, the excavations at Megiddo, the first American excavations in the 1920s, with the sole purpose to find Solomon's city. So I have to understand that was a state of mind. That was the reason they came. The, 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 the way of thought was 
Um, okay, it's written in the Bible. It has to be in the ground. We just have to find it. The sad thing in, is that to this day, there are still people who are sure that it's in the ground. And, you know, the joke is that they come to a site. They already know what they're going to find. It's just that the ground, the, the ground is in the way. They just have to move it. Um, but all that has changed. All that has changed. Uh, we're trying to cram something like nearly 30 years of a chronological debate into, I don't know, how much do we have? Half an hour? Yes. <laughs> yeah, about, about 30 minutes, yeah. <laughs> so where do, where do you stand on the argument, Gilad? Is, is the truth okay. out there? Okay, I'll, um, yeah, the truth is out there. It depends on, on, on what school of archaeology you come from. Um, the, big, the big issue began in the 60s and 70s with archaeologists like Yadin, uh, who excavated Tel Chatzor, for example, and Megiddo, and he found similar architectural elements, like the same gate, or a very similar water system. And he went with that and found uh, a verse in the Bible, in Kings 1, chapter 16. No, chapter 9, verse 16, sorry. Um, and there it states that Solomon built Megiddo and Chatzor and another city called Gezer. And he found all these elements which do match up in some ways. And he decreed that here, this, these are the levels that belong to King Solomon, 10th century BC. And that was, that was what, you know, that was a paradigm. That was how archaeology uh, uh, saw, saw that, saw those finds for since 1966 until around 1990. That's when people started misbehaving, if you would. <laughs> it's like, um, um, as someone who's and, uh, archaeological um, background literally just um, extends to watching Time Team, there's a red flag going off in my head that, kind of are you people taking the answer this is solomon's city and then going and making the site match it when surely you have to do it the other way around you have to go to the site and excavate it and it tells you what it tells you is it not dangerous to go in there assuming you already know the answer yes. because you've seen it in the bible yes and that's 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 a big problem now that was that was the the, the way people worked or not the way people worked but there certainly was a lot of biblical influence on the archaeological uh, uh, understanding. So when an archaeologist came to interpret his finds, he based a lot of his finds in correlation with the Bible instead of just interpreting the finds. And that's the big question. Do they or do they not fit the biblical narrative? If they do, yay, everybody's happy. If they don't, it's fine. It's just a different story. Now, the problem is, that the Bible is a sacred text, and you try to tell people that their sacred text isn't completely 100% true, and then smoke comes out of their ears. And that's, that's where the problem starts. So you said that people started uh, misbehaving in the 90s. Um, yeah. Tell us what happened. Yeah. A new school arose, um, basically led by archaeologists from Tel Aviv University, where I studied my BA and my MA, which gives you a hint where I come from. Um, and basically they said the evidence doesn't add up, meaning that we have certain finds. Let's, let's talk about pottery. Okay, I love pottery. It's one of my favorite finds in, in, in archaeological excavations. 
And if you have a certain set of pottery finds from, let's say, Megiddo and Chatzor, and you date them to the 10th century, and you say, this is Solomon's level. This stratum belongs to the Solomonic period, the great, great empire of Solomon. Then you have two other sites, let's say Samaria and Tel Jezreel, which are not far away from Megiddo, by the way. And you find exactly the same set of finds, but you date them to the 9th century. Okay? A hundred years later. This is a problem. What happened is that the dating of the finds from Megiddo were influenced by the Bible, so they, the perception was, okay, they have to be Solomonic, let's put them in the 10th century. The finds from Samaria, for example, aren't mentioned in the Solomonic stories, so they can be interpreted as they really are, 9th century. So the people from Tel Aviv University started writing articles and said, listen, this doesn't add up. If these sites are 9th century, we have to make Megiddo 9th century. But if Megiddo is 9th century, you can't, you can't put it, you can't uh, uh, attribute it to Solomon. And then the big debate began. Sounds okay. like you guys are a bunch of troublemakers. Uh, <laughs> yes. Look, I have to say that let's 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 uh, um, um, basically generally my um, in my way of seeing things that is I think that it's regardless of what you believe or what school you belong to, it's always good to bring up radical ideas because it, it invigorates the system. Everybody starts thinking and talking and researching, so it's always a good thing, you know. Um, well, you know, I'm not talking about history revisionism. Yeah? I'm not saying you should go now and try and prove that Russia didn't invade Poland. Okay, that's not what we're talking about. Are there any Poles on the line here? <laughs> so, uh, Alina, Alina knows my <laughs> So, Alina, uh, Gilad, Alina, why am I asking you? Uh, Gilad, it, so we're coming from a, a place, I think, where the problem is that people are so desperate to prove that the contents of the Bible are valid with material evidence um, that it's, it's convoluting their, their research and it's convoluting their thought process and pro their, all of their training when it comes to actually working yeah. on sites. Yeah, well, I wouldn't say to that extreme, but I would say that there is still a lot of influence of the biblical text on the interpretation of the archaeological material, which, as you said earlier, it should be the other way around. You should excavate your site, interpret your finds, and then you can compare them to the biblical narrative. Does this fit? If it doesn't fit, okay, it's a different story. Then ask yourself, why doesn't it fit? There has to be a reason. Is it, does the reason come from the biblical uh, uh, writer himself, the biblical author? Did he have reasons to tell different stories? <clears throat> if you take it another step further, um, the great fabled Solomonic Kingdom, the huge empire that the Bible tells us about. Think about it. When was the last time you heard of an empire and you have no written evidence of her existence at all? Have you saw no. something? Have you seen something like that? <laughs> I, I honestly... No, it can't happen. And we have no, there's no shred of evidence 
that this huge empire ever existed. And you would assume that it would have left some kind of, I don't know, trading documents. We have all kinds of miscellaneous documents from different kinds of empires and periods. Uh, and there's nothing left. And when you take it to the ninth century and you attribute these levels to later kings, which belong to the kingdom of Israel as opposed to the later kingdom of Judah, then um, suddenly... You, have, uh, you also have written sources regarding these kings. And, and everything starts to fit in. The problem here is less the archaeology. It's more the preconception of the people that um, there can't be such a discrepancy between the biblical text and the finds. That, that's a problem. The problem is, isn't with the archaeology and the research. It's with the people and their willingness to accept the actual truth. Have you um, excavated uh, sites where you have seen correlation with the Bible? Yes, we have sites and we have uh, uh, events that, that correlate uh, with the Bible. Again, you have to differentiate. It, it can correlate to the Bible, um, but it doesn't, uh, it doesn't mean that the whole story is, uh, is, is exact. I'll give you a good example. Uh, end of the 8th century BC, 701, uh, the Assyrian conquest of Judah, Israel and Judah. We have evidence which is both biblical, archaeological, and historical, which altogether tells the same story about the Assyrian conquest. We have um, sling stones found at Tel Lachish. We have a rampart built by the Assyrians in Tel Lachish. If you go to the British Museum, you're probably uh, familiar with the Lachish Relief. I assume you saw it once? Yes, yep. That relief tells the conquest of Lachish. That conquest is evidenced in archaeological excavations that were uh, done on the tell. We have finds from that conquest. We have the uh, Sankhari prison, prism, which tells in Akkadian, in cuneiform letters, the whole story of the conquest. And we have the Bible relating to the conquest. And we have finds in Jerusalem which relate to the Assyrian siege of the city. So when it fits, it fits. You can't argue with the actual finds in the ground. These are facts. We have to remember archaeology is a science of facts. We, we're not, we, we, can, we can ask ourselves how they built it. You know, the most famous question I get all the time is how did they build the pyramids? I can give you a multitude of theories. But the bottom line is, the fact is, they built them. I'm not talking about the screwballs, talking about dinosaurs and aliens. <laughs> or aliens dropping them. Or the inflatable one in the Minions film. You know, there, was, there was an Egyptian archaeologist who claimed last year that he found a papyrus fragment that proved that the dinosaurs helped build the pyramids. How? T-Rex only has like tiny little sad arms. How would dinosaurs help? I don't know. The, the, the bronchosaurus with the long neck. Oh, okay, what, so they used them as like... Uh, so like they used them basically as mules is what they're saying. I, I had visions there for a moment of T-Rex with his little gimpy arms trying to, yeah, trying to, uh, to put the blocks up one on top of the other. I suppose he could use his mouth. But no, it's, it's ludicrous. I, what, is, what for you is the most contentious site that makes you think, just no, it doesn't add up. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Megiddo. Megiddo. Armageddon. It's, 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 it's just all out there. I excavated in 2004. I was assistant area, assistant director of uh, Area L. It's the Northern Palace in Megiddo. Um, and, and you just see it. I mean, the, it doesn't add up. You have one site and the finds are dated 10th century. You drive 10 minutes, literally 10 minutes. You find another site, looks exactly the same, and is dated 9th century. Why? Megiddo is mentioned in the Bible and the other one isn't. So the Bible doesn't, didn't, the people didn't feel the need to correlate the Bible with the finds, so they just let the archaeology speak, which should be in every site. Um, there are things going on now in Jerusalem, which, well, when you talk about the whole excavations and what's going on in the city of David in Jerusalem, which is just south of the famous Temple Mount, um, you're getting into the whole political, national narrative uh, issue, which also is, uh, well, basically that's what I told you earlier, it's my, what's my PhD will deal with. But um, again, so people are letting the narrative um, actually direct the excavation, if you want to, in certain points, in certain places. Is there and any... Um, it's a problem. So I was just going to ask, is there any site that you would love to find or any suggestion of a site that hasn't been excavated yet that you think may uh, either substantially correlate with the Bible or um, substantially disprove anything? Um, well, I don't think there's one site that hasn't or shouldn't. I do think, um, for example, uh, again, the excavations at uh, Megiddo, which is the best example, are going on for a long time now. They're excavating since 1992. I think the problem over there is that they need to stop and leave it alone and let uh, future generations return to the site. That's what's happening now, let's say, in Tel Lachish. Again, who, the ones excavating Lachish are, in my opinion, not doing a good job, but um, that's my opinion. Um, but I think we need to leave major sites alone for now, let the technology advance, let new ideas come in, fresh blood come in, and then let them return to these places 
and 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 it gives it gives it might give us different results a good example is the copper mines in southern israel right on the tip um you know where that is yeah right across yes. from akaba yeah i know akaba well <laughs> okay so not far from there is is the copper mines of timna which have been excavated since 2013 i think by a new um team dr uh eris ben yosef uh who's who's on he's actually he's he's a specialist in ancient metallurgy and um and he's bringing interesting results which which disprove uh, earlier theories about the site they even found a gate a gate to the to the to the work area of the copper mines which is so weird wow. so so th- th- that's what i'm talking about about I don't think there aren't a lot of major sites that haven't been excavated today. You can hardly find any. We're talking about nearly 150 years of excavations in Israel, biblical excavations. I'm putting aside Roman, Hellenistic, or prehistoric stuff, yeah? Um, so I think what we need is, is to take sites and, and, you know, people who've been excavating for 20 years, let's say some site, just stop, leave it alone. leave areas unexcavated for future generations. It's very, very important. We see it all over. Do you know what? We had Mary Beard on um, at the weekend and she was saying exactly the same thing about Pompeii and about how they've left one third of it and that's oh. how it should be and how Pompeii's it should be. Mess. Yeah. Pompeii is a big mess because there's something like seven different excavation teams on the site and no one's talking to the other team. They're not sharing anything. I guess it's the whole thing where every archaeologist wants to be the one to discover that amazing thing that's going to change the whole course of history. So they're yeah. all vying to just, just keep on going and not giving a chance to future generations. Exactly. Well, the, the one who did it um, in, the most, in the best way was uh, David Yusishkin, who excavated. He's the famous excavator of Lachish. And he, when he published his monumental final publication, like... five volumes, if they throw it at you, you die. Um, so uh, he actually devoted a whole section of the introduction with a plan to show which areas have not been excavated so future generations will know where they can excavate without, without uh, uh, past interruptions. And, and that's what should happen. That's what should happen. In these major sites, that's what should happen. Jerusalem, leave it alone. Uh, Megiddo, leave it alone. Lachish, leave it alone. Beit Shemesh, leave it alone. Um, Tel Kabri is also reaching that point. I think the, the, the current uh, excavation team, which I gave many, uh, uh, said many good words about them earlier, and I stand behind them, but I think maybe they should think about starting to close it up. That's my opinion. It's interesting, isn't it? That, like, so we look back on ex- Victorian excavation in complete horror now because of the methods they used and the way that they did it. I mean, and it's just a natural evolution. Presumably, these later generations are going to come along and they're going to be looking at what we did and go, oh, my God, they ruined it. They completely wrecked it. What were they doing? So uh, you're right. We do I'll, need I'll to leave you, something. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a funny story. Um, you know that in archaeology, there's a lot of importance for working in, in levels, in stratums. So you know what came earlier, what came later, and what, what goes where. When uh, McAllister excavated Tel Gezer in, the central, in central Israel, it was in the, early, in the beginning of the 20th century, the method then was to excavate in trenches, long trenches. And he excavated the first trench, 
and he finished it, he went over to start the second one. What did he do? He took all the the uh, uh, all the spoil, the, the the ground that he excavated from the second uh, trench, and filled backfilled up the first trench with it. So basically, he took the site and turned it on its head. It's horrific. <laughs> Even and I know that's dealing. like no. <laughs> and 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 we're still dealing with that in Tel Gezel today. It still has repercussions on on on, on research today. So, so, so yeah, um, I, I know we're we're not in that we're not in that position now. People are doing very high quality scientific excavations with the utmost, really, very very regarding all all the the, the limitations, everything you have to uh, you have to do when you're excavating. But it's not that it's it's the way of thought. I mean, think about it. It's only 30 years ago that people started saying, well, maybe Solomon's Empire didn't exist. And look at where we are now. We're talking about it here. I'm saying the same thing can happen, but we have to have to let that generation arrive and we have to let them have something to work on. Tell us about um, your favorite find in your archaeological career, um, your favorite biblical era find, even if it doesn't correlate actually with the contents of the Bible. I don't have a biblical era. I have a one-of-a-kind, the only one in the world, Byzantine period find. You want to hear about it? Absolutely, yeah. Of course. <laughs> no one else uh, found something like this. It's my excavation in, in the northern, uh, again, northern coastal plain of Israel. A big salvage excavation uh, ahead of building uh, new railroad tracks. Um, again, it was found inside some sort of what we we assumed we interpreted as a public building we're talking uh fifth century uh uh ad byzantine period a huge building with hewn stones very beautifully built and inside of it was what we call a bread stamp now bread stamps are a known tradition here in the levant think of it like when you buy bread today you buy it in a packet and there's the name of the bakery and stuff like that right Mm-hmm. It's the same idea. You stamp it into the dough before you bake the bread, and then it bakes with, you know, like it's like a branding, okay? The thing is that this bread stamp had a menorah on it, which means this bread stamp wasn't about who made the bread. It was about saying that the bread was made by Jews, and it's kosher for Jews. This is an, a 1,500-year-old kosher stamp. That's incredible. Okay. And it's one of a kind. And then, two years ago, by mistake, I didn't even know, I found out it was displayed at the Museum of the Crusader Halls in Akko. That's where I took you in. That was amazing. I actually got to see it firsthand. So. And I saw it, and I saw, and I actually, I saw it completely by, by chance. I, didn't, I really didn't know. I was looking, I said, hey, that looks like a bread stamp, like the one that I found. And then I see that the name is my site. Uh, okay, <laughs> that's nice. <laughs> so tell us about your Indiana Jones moment then. Um, well, I actually, um, I was the first one to re-excavate and enter a tomb excavated by the first uh, archaeologist to dig in Megiddo a hundred years after him. Um, I was sent by the excavation director, Sishkin, to find it. They wanted to re-find it. And, um, and it was actually like walking. It was physically walking in the footsteps of the first 
you know, mythological excavator of Megiddo. And, um, and I even had an Indiana Jones style hat at that period, which was like awesome. <laughs> we need a photograph. Send yeah. us a photograph. I, of that have, I can find, I have photographs I can find and send you. Um, and you know, it's sometimes it's, it's as much fun to excavate Iron Age as it is sometimes fun to excavate the excavators. Um, and at that excavation, by the way, I can also tell you that I was a bit of a, you know, mischievous to say. I also forged an ancient, uh, <laughs> an ancient <laughs> ceramic. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't go into the official record, did it? No, no, no. We, 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 we did a prank on one of our friends and one of our lady friends. She had a birthday and we had a special ancient Hebrew linguistic uh, specialist on site and we asked him to write on the part that we shared uh, happy birthday and then we, we we made it look like it was really old like it was sitting in the ground for years and then we stuck it in her area and then she found it and she was running around the site screaming I found the writing I found writing and she goes to the big director and he says well it says happy birthday <laughs> <laughs> archaeologist humor oh yeah well no archaeologist off you know uh, uh when you're when you're off work, oh, it's crazy. Archaeology excavations, oh, it's crazy. I'm not talking about you know the dirty stuff. Just talking about being crazy. <laughs> I could I can vouch for that. I've been on a few excavations, and archaeologists are all crazy. Good oh, yeah. crazy, but crazy. Um, but basically, um, we can't we can't I can't give you a definitive answer. I can give you the two options. There is a school that says Solomon's empire existed. Even if we can't find the exact biblical narrative, we can still see enough of it in the field and in the archaeology to know that it existed. On the other hand, the Tel Aviv school, let's call it, the minimalist school, says that um, this, the empire that we call Solomonic actually uh, existed a hundred years later. We should attribute it to like uh, to the um, dynasty of Umri or King Ahab, and um, and Solomon's kingdom, even if it existed, was very small and insignificant, uh, and certainly not what the Bible tells us. So That's what you're saying is that the truth is out there, but you've just got to be willing to hear it. Yes, yes. And, and like everything in humanities, there's always more than one option. And, and of course, I'm all for respecting all options. I just think that the option that thinks that Solomon's empire existed is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Gilad, you've mentioned Jerusalem a couple of times. Um, just give us, I know this is an incredibly complex uh, subject, but just give us an overview. Why is Jerusalem so exciting from a biblical archaeology point of view? Um, well, because, uh, first of all, um, because it's, it's Jerusalem. That's, that's a simple answer. Um, but there are a lot of finds, and believe it or not, with it being Jerusalem and being so excavated for so long, there's still a lot to find. And... And it holds one big, big, big question mark, which is called Temple Mount. And no one, no one knows what's going on underneath there, really, because no one can excavate. People ask me, why don't they excavate on Temple Mount? And my, my answer is always this. 
if you excavate on Temple Mount, the only thing you'll find there is World War Three. Yeah, <laughs> I can so, imagine. Um, but but it's 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 very complex. There's a lot to talk about. Um, I think we'll do it injustice if we'll just give, cram it in two minutes. Well, I'll tell you what, we'll see how people respond to this. I mean, I, th I think it's going to be great. Um, and then potentially we can get you back on to do um, a show just about archaeology uh, in Jerusalem and uh, where That'd it goes from here. No problem. Fine by me. <laughs> <laughs> well, while we've got you on, I've got a question. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say I'm really lucky I've got you at the end of my phone. I can give you a call and ask you this, but I'm sure there's people listening to this who really want to know what your top five places are to visit in Israel. Okay. Um, uh, ancient city of Akko. Uh, with all respect to Jerusalem, it's the most beautiful ancient city in Israel. And it has, um, you have biblical on the tell, you have Hellenistic, Byzantine, Roman, uh, Crusader halls, and Napoleonic stuff. All that in one ancient city crammed. Um, with a beautiful market and excellent food. <laughs> so, <laughs> this is important. Yes. Uh, Caesarea, Caesarea Martima by the sea. Uh, Alina was there. She can tell you as well. Beautiful Oh, my place. God. That beautiful. was... And if you I... want to understand, if you want to understand what is Herodian architecture and Roman architecture in Israel, that's the place to be. Of course, do Jerusalem. But if you go to Jerusalem... Please go to the Israel Museum, the archaeological wing. It's amazing. You have 15,000 years of history in the archaeological wing, and it's, it's just amazing. It's a two, three-hour tour, and it, it'll just really, if, for someone who's never been in Israel, it'll, it takes your breath. It's, it's so beautifully displayed and so interesting and easy to understand. And that's three. Uh, Masada by the Dead Sea. Very, very important, very important, very beautiful. And yes, I've said this a lot of times, um, but either Tel Chatzor or Tel Megiddo to understand what actual biblical archaeology in Israel looks like. It, yeah, those are, that's my list. I, you've certainly sparked my imagination. Um, tell people again, because you've mentioned you're going to do this, if they want to hear more from you and more about archaeology, I can't say that word today, um, in Israel, uh, how can they hear you? Um, well, I'm starting now uh, a line of uh, archaeology lectures in English, uh, pre-recorded for now, because uh, mainly because of time zone differences. We're here on three time time zones in this talk here, so um, uh, to to avoid juggling that, um, I'm gonna uh, they're gonna be online and for sale for a fair price. Um, different various topics. My first one, if you wanna. Uh, uh, spark your imagination more is can or can we not find the Solomonic Temple in Temple Mount? Excellent. I know I'll be tuning in and I know Alina will be as well because she's like your biggest fan. <laughs> oh, thanks. Thanks for that. You take it. <laughs> it's not a bad thing. He's great. Listen, Gilad was a wonderful, wonderful tour guide and I could not have had a better experience out there. So thank you. Well, we definitely look forward to having you back on here. Gilad, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. I had, I had a great time. Um, you can join us tomorrow for, uh, we can't bring you boxing because no one's allowed to touch each other, but we can bring you a heavyweight showdown of historians. We are going to pit Tom Holland, 
ancient history master against James Holland, the king of World War II. Um, and we're going to interview them about what it's like to be two brothers from the same family, going in wildly different directions in the same career. Uh, we're going to have some fun with them as well, with some shenanigans, uh, stoke up some brotherly... Uh, rivalry so it should be good fun if you've uh, got any questions for them at all please get them into us um because we will happily ask them can, can we also get tom holland to play spider-man in that uh potentially he might not have much to say this is this is the the first tom holland not the imposter that wears the lycra yeah. suit i uh, thank you for specifying because i feel there may have been some very disappointed teenage girls whose parents are forcing them to listen to this <laughs> podcast if uh, you had not told us that gilad thanks so much it's been great to have you. you it's thank been you. amazing thank you this is nighthawk signing off and remember people stay safe and more importantly if you can stay at home even on a budget quality is non-negotiable That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.